know it was here, thought Tris Marigold, looking around the room, looking at the tapestries, paintings, and numerous hunting trophies. Here, in this room, after the devastation of the throne room, a memorable conversation took place between Calanthe, the Witcher, Pavetta, and an enchanted hedgehog. Here, the Queen agreed to a strange marriage. After all, the princess was already pregnant, and Ciri was born less than eight months later. I did not even remotely suspect Dooney would be a thing ever again, nor did I suspect M here was anyone other than what he seemed to be. You don't like it when a surprise is completely out of nowhere, but when it's out of nowhere but makes sense, it's awesome. And that's like what, what this one was, because at first it's like, what? And then you piece it all together and it's like, holy crap, that it just fits incredibly well. But how did we see none of it coming at all? I don't know, did any, any of you guys suspect it even a little bit or suspect something? For my Amir reveal, I had played The Witcher 3 The Wild Hunt when it got released back in two, uh, 2015. It's my favorite game of all time. So that's how I started. And then I read the book. So I kind of already knew from the start what was going on. So when I was reading through the books, I had a little bit of a different perspective of the whole legacy plot with Amir and kind of his wanting to acquire power and conquer the world and his kind of warping of prophecy and stuff like that. And uh, the Amir reveal is just such a huge thing. It's like this Darth Vader moment in The Witcher, if you think about it. So, yeah, so I didn't know from the game. I didn't, I only knew from the first season of the show. And I was just like, I, I did not put it together at all. And I was, to paint a picture, I had like, you know, that the, the chapter in which this is revealed is already an extremely emotional chapter and extremely eventful and like changes everything. And then, and I, I had gotten through all the, the stuff that comes before the reveal and was just like, oh my God, oh yeah, everything's really sad, but it looks like we're kind of coming to a break in the action. Okay, like I can listen <laughs> to this part on the subway. It's fine. And then I got on the subway. It's packed because it's rush hour back when subway taking was a thing. It, it was like, Dooney. What the f- <laughs> like I was like it was it was like I was actually like stopping myself from screaming. <laughs> I, I, if I had been alone, I would have like, like I the second I got off the subway, I like texted my I, I didn't even text him. I just like voice messaged my friend. I was like, what 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 is going on? <laughs> and I was just yeah, I I lost my mind. I, I I went shopping with my sister, and I was like, she was like, what's wrong? I was like, you don't understand what just happened in this book. You don't understand. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's it was not something I expected, but also something that does, in a really dark and wonderful way, slot in pretty perfectly. And I think what we're here to do today, in part, is to show maybe because there's so many ways it slots in, it's easy to have missed some of them. I mean, going back through, I certainly noticed a lot of things that I couldn't have known. I mean, when you reread, that's when you're on the lookout for these things that you're like, this time I'm going to be on the lookout for clues for these things that got revealed later. And you do see a few of them. They're not, they're certainly not obvious even on reread, but gives you such a different perspective um, knowing what's coming. And it's really fun. And that's just general and generally true with this series and any like really good fantasy or any kind of fictional series that has a lot of world building. It's really hard to come into it and grasp it all the first time through because the world building is so important to the story. And if you can't grasp it all, lots of things are going to slide past you. And that's to be expected because no one's, you know, that smart. <laughs> no one can hold that much information at once. Now you go through and you're like, oh, I know who that is. And I know who they're, what they're after. And I know what that person's ambition is. And I know this piece of world building. 
Yeah. I, I do just want to say, like, this is really the reason why A Question of Price is my favorite story in this book and one of my favorites in total, because you just, you read it differently. It's a different story depending on at what point you read it. You know, it's a almost romantic comedy the first time you read it. And then when you come back after having read the whole series, it's a tragedy and it's a farce. And the, the story works perfectly in both of those ways. And I think that's just masterful. We're going to wrap up all the characters that were in A Question of Price. Like any character that was in A Question of Price, we're going to talk about what happened to them and where are they now and whether they survived the series or etc. So there's a lot of different little characters. A few of them we don't have the fates on, but most of them we do. Some of them are surprisingly important. Um, like Marshall Visegard is a, is a pretty big character. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> the way we're like placed in The Witcher, it's so interesting when you're reading you know, different epic stories like this and the way you're placed in and, and how much of the world is already conceptually built, how much history is there, how much do you have to do that through storytelling, through characters? Like that, that is such an interesting thing with Sapkowski, right? Because he uses these locations and these battles. He's just, he's just so great at that. And that's one of the reasons I, I, I put this up there. This is probably my favorite book series because it's, it's so subtle. And it's just like, oh my God. He just puts it right in front of your nose. And then you're like, ah, I was an idiot. I should have saw that. He hides it in so many different layers, right? Like, so there's the fairy tale adaptation slash takeoff. There's the depth of the story. You know, there's also just like all these details that are important. And we're going to talk about a lot of them. He doesn't want you to pay attention to one specific detail. So he throws in a whole bunch of detail. And a lot of authors do that. And you're like, okay, but that's the important thing. But Sapkowski is just really, really good at like, also, he just drowns you. <laughs> it's like, like, I imagine conversations between him and his editor and he's just like, all right, so we're going to like do the battle next, right? And Sapkowski's like, no, we will have an elven genetics lesson. A long one. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have recognized you. You have indeed changed greatly. I simply worked out who you were. Some time ago, I guessed, not without help and a hint from someone else, what role incest plays in Ciri's family, in her blood. I even dreamed about the most awful, the most hideous incest imaginable in a gruesome nightmare. And well, here you are, in person. Burn! <laughs> it doesn't really hold back, does also it? Also <laughs> worth noting, Geralt is at like one of his like lowest points in this in the store. Oh, I love this. So yeah, that's like right after Regis and Kay here at Milva have just been killed. And I, I, I was reading this again. I was just like, my emotions are out of control right now. This is not even okay. <sighs> and what's ironic is Amir, Amir is Siri's dad and Geralt's acting like a dad here. He's like, dude, this is disgusting. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Just like urchin meaning hedgehog in Old English, Emir means hedgehog and Nilfgaardian. Ha ha. <laughs> How funny is that? He was born in, I guess, the early 1220s. There's not a, an exact dating on this, but we can sort of figure it out based on circumstantial and other dates. He's actually the son of Emperor Fergus, who is the son of Emperor Taurus. Taurus is the one who reintroduced sun worship into Nilfgaardian society, uh, which would be a good topic for another day. He says he's the son of Ackerspark of Mech, which I don't know how to say that, which is another Nilfgaardian 
territory that's been conquered. And right after he shows up as Dooney, Macht is, has been just conquered. So it's really chaotic there. So it's a good place to claim he's from because it's really hard for people to check. People are superstitious and mad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so he is, ta- he is taken by the usurper. Apparently they struck his name from the records. The usurper tortured Emperor Fergus and as part of the torture was well, turning him here into Dooney. And it still didn't break him though. Fergus just was killed rather than saying, okay, you're the emperor now. He wanted to like legally take control because that would be legal, torturing a man into signing a, and signing a document. But he didn't sign, he didn't admit. And instead, Emir is chased off uh, into hiding. He, he, there's a few friends still loyal to him that help him stay hidden and keep him from being killed. And then this uh, guy, Zarthisius, who is the same one that appears in the main series to look for Siri, the astromancer guy, he tells Emir that if you go beyond the Marn at all stairs, you'll be able to cure your curse. And that's you know where he finds, he does so and finds King Rogner in 1237. Pavetta is, of course, born not long after that. Then he starts seeing Pavetta circa 1251. And then Question of Price is 1252. And Siri is born in 1253, or maybe late 1252, probably 1253 because of the Beltine holiday is early in the year. And that's when she supposedly was born. Dooney does actually live in Sintra for quite a while, as Calanthe suggested. She said, you know, you could just live here for a while. You know, I'm going to be queen, you know, et cetera. They were, they're living in Sintra, but they actually lived in Skellige most of the time, uh, which we'll explain later, mostly because Dooney was trying to keep on the down low about Mecht slowly becoming us unchaotic and uh, figuring out who he is. So now let's move on to Nilfgaard, or to Vilgefortz. Vilgefortz, the extremely reliable, says. <laughs> <laughs> the wizard bluntly admitted that he wished to achieve a high position. Then he pulled out a scroll tied with snakeskin and acquainted me with the contents. So I knew of the prophecy. I learned about the future fate of the world, and I realized what I must do. And I have come to believe that the end justifies the means. No, it doesn't. FYI. And that's also not, not what's really motivating you, you sick son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> this inspires Dooney, maybe not inspires, partly inspires, but enables him to reclaim his throne because Vilgefortz is like, well, I'll help you. Uh, and of course, you know, Dooney's no dummy. He's like, well, what do you want out of it? And well... So this is where the, we get attached to the madness of the sea and the Maelstrom plot disease. Yeah, this is where the Sedna Abyss plot comes in because that's the, the plot between Emir and uh, Vilgefortz was to sneak Siri and Pavetta off into that ship and then have them teleport away, make it look like they went into the abyss. But of course, that doesn't happen the way they wanted because even though we don't know a lot about Pavetta, she was clever and attentive and observant. She undermines the plan, good for her. And she's still pretty young. Around, it appears that she died around age 22. As I mentioned briefly, she was spent a lot of her time on Skellige because Dooney wanted to avoid the rumors of people finding out he wasn't really uh, the son of Akerspark. And of course, the hedgehog business is just people were talking about that. He just didn't like that. She also made friends with Anna Henrietta, which is the, you know, the, the Duchess of Toussaint. 
And that really helps because Anna is actually cousin to Amir, which makes her cousin to Siri because as for obvious reasons. So that really helped when they went to Toussaint. So this is part of why they had a friendly reception. So some sort of weird argument happens on board the ship because Joni maybe confronts Pavetta about the lack of Cirilla being there. And somehow... They were sailing from Skellige to Sintra. They were surprised by a storm. Not a single splinter was found in the ship, Geralt. That the child was not with them is an incredibly queer matter. Inexplicable. They were meant to take it with them, but at the last moment did not. No one knows why. Pavetta could never be parted from... Dot, dot, dot. This is when Geralt asks what happened to Dunia and Pavetta. And then Calanthe also asked about it. She notes... Pavetta and Juni destined for each other until the very end. How can one not believe in the power of destiny? To me, it definitely feels like there is, you know, not just destiny, but a very strong agency on Pavetta's part to, like, she's such an unagented character. She is given so little information and, and, you know, made to do so much, many feelings. But my interpretation is that she, at some point, caught on to the fact that Dooney was Amir and had nefarious plans for her daughter. I mean, she definitely is behind leaving Siri on dry land um, with Calanthe, but I I don't know. I just, I, I love to think about her in that moment, just like making maybe like the only major choice she's made in her life other than like agreeing to marry Dooney. And I mean, to me, there's no question that Amir killed her. Uh, like, I won't debate it because I just... She fell over the side of the ship. And and at that point, he wouldn't need her anymore, you know, because he knows Siri is alive. And, like, his whole point is, like, he's going to run away with them. And Pavetta is, was angry and he murders her. I mean, it's just, like, it's just that simple. And, yeah, he's a terrible person. <laughs> The, the way the story is told, it's like, oh, yeah, Vilgefortz had to stop me from going over the edge. We were already in the maelstrom. Yeah, he wanted to jump in and save Pavetta. I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I just found that kind of weird. Two, two really awful people. Also, Vilgefortz is causing the storm. If he wanted her to, to, to not drown, could have stopped the storm. Like, it's... Right, in that situation, they, they specifically say the shy Pavetta like, made her move, right? I mean, like against two people with a lot of power... And uh, this is so so cool that she at least had agency in saving Siri. And she could have, I mean, she she could have saved her own life probably by by going along. Like, I, I don't think Amir was like, I have to kill you. It's certainly convenient to still have that peace, but it's not necessary. And, and they call her shy, but I mean, and it's probably true-ish, but she's more of like, it's more of mistaking her for being an introvert. I think she's just introverted. I wonder how she sensed the plot going down. Is it because her, her intuition and her relationship with Dooney or was it magical? Like, I wish we knew more about that. Yeah, you wonder about that because, yeah, she may have had, may have been prophetic or she may have said something in front of one of her servants and then the servant told her what she said. And she's like, oh, because, yeah, what, she would have had the ability potentially to, to have those prophetic moments like, like Siri does. So, yeah, that should be, that, that has to have happened at some point. Maybe that's part of why Amir knew he had to get rid of her too, because she's just going to, whether she wants to or not, she's just going to speak truth in these moments where she turns into an oracle. And I don't think he wants that just happening. You know, at random times, it's like, no, it's, it's, it's a loose. We can't have that happening. It's so crazy how she had to grow up. She got pregnant at 14 and then had Syria at 15. And then like her whole life is gone. Like that's so sad. 
And, and they call her shy, but I mean, and it's probably true-ish, but she's more of like, it's more of mistaking her for being an introvert. I think she's just introverted, you know, which isn't, which mean, which doesn't mean, you know, shy and introversion goes together somewhat, but it doesn't mean she's afraid. It doesn't mean she's not able to confront somebody. It just means that it's not her normal, you know, day-to-day attitude. She's, she doesn't like looking people in the eye. She doesn't, it's not that she's afraid of them. It's, it's, it's like Kalantha is scissors and Pavetta is paper. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like <laughs> this doesn't go together. Yeah. Like Pavetta likes to read. She's a bookworm. Like that's one, one thing we find out, uh, you know, off page is that she, she just liked to be by herself. She didn't like having court servants around her. She liked to be by herself. That's an introvert. I mean, that's very straightforward. She liked books and being by herself. And yeah. <laughs> I do love like a lot of the stories that I am drawn to a lot of the time come down to an initial tragedy, a lot of the time involving parenthood, Harry Potter, Song of Ice and Fire, all these things. And this is very much this originating seed for The Witcher. It's so frustrating because like Pavetta gets so little screen time and she she barely speaks with her own voice, you know, but she sets in motion some of the most incredible stuff in the story. I think she she made a really incredible sacrificial choice and in Pavetta's name, we stand. She's the hidden MVP. Right. <laughs> Amir's like, oh, well, it was the mage's little joke to turn me into a hedgehog because it sounds like hedgehog in Nilfgaardian. Then he's like, well, so when it was time for me to murder him, sorcerer's name is Brathens. And apparently that sounds like the word for fried. In, uh, in Elf Guardian. And these sweet, innocent boys were like, oh, we probably boiled him alive. I'm like, no, 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 guys. There was oil involved. There might have been coating. I, I think this was a full-on fry-up. Fry! Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, can, I can imagine, like, Amir just being like, Brethens, Brethens, what does it sound like? <laughs> I need to find the right punishment. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting to see how his orders throughout the the books interplay with the fact that we know who he is now. Like the first time you read through, you don't know that when he's referring to the Witcher, when he sends orders out of referring to Geralt and dealing with him and what to do about him, it comes from a place of, of having met him personally, which really changes it, especially with quotes like this. Ryan says to stop pussyfooting around and to stop playing with the Witcher else it could end badly. No one toys with the Witcher. I know him, Cohorn. He is too clever to lead Reince to the trail. I repeat, Reince is to organize the assassination immediately, to take the Witcher out of the game at once. He is to kill him and then disappear, bide his time and await my orders. That's not a very nice thing to do to a guy who saved your life. Well, I mean, yeah, that that's again like the it's yay, Geralt saved Dooney's life in in the first time you read the story, and then it's like, ah, just let the fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah, darn it. So you wonder if Emir was mad about the child of surprise part, the whole like, okay, I'm gonna claim her. And he's like, wait, no, that was gonna be at the time, Dooney didn't know that he was uh, you know who Cirillo or who Pavetta was, because Vilgefortz hadn't approached her. He just knew that she was a princess. And so the, the political power part was a big deal. He didn't know about the elder blood stuff. But still, he couldn't have been happy with Geralt stealing his kid, basically. So that, you know, that because that is, he did impregnate Pavetta. So he, you know, might be possessive about his child there. 
you could look at it that way or you could look at it in like the destiny way and that like Amir presumably believes in destiny, mm. right? What Geralt's doing is at the height of his triumph, invoking another form of destiny that is eventually going to unravel all of the destiny that, that Amir has been working toward. Well said. Well, you, you know what I find really interesting? Like you mentioned this as he's like, Amir did this because he wanted to get rid of the curse, right? Like, at first, that's what it was. What if Vilgeforce never came around and spewed that prophecy to Dunya? Yeah. I wonder if things would have turned out differently. Good point. You know what I mean? Because but his, his views start to change just a little bit after that, don't you think? I don't know. Yeah. I've always wondered what happened if Vilgeforce wouldn't approach Demir. Emir mm. didn't think he could get his throne back until Vilgeforce's offer. So it does seem like his magic, his ability to make moves his network of spies and things like that was was important for the reclaiming of the throne, although Emir will surely and does discount Vilgefortz's help. It seems like it was actually pretty vital. That's why I wonder if Vilgefortz and the sorcerers, if they actually knew more beforehand than we thought. That's kind of just a vibe I'm getting because I was like, wow, this is like such a big deal and such a big turning point for Emir. It's like, what if they, like, did they know extra information, like some sort of prop, like, did they see forward? I don't know. That's kind of just something that I've always wondered. Where are they now? Let's do a little where are they now-ness. Uh, unfortunately, we don't know what happened to Kud Kudak. He may have just passed by the time the main event started because, you know, that was quite a bit of time has passed since Question of Price before the main series starts. Mouse Act so basically, you know, and the TV show has him die in the fall of Sintra, which would kind of, it's kind of a safe assumption for book canon that he dies in the fall of Sintra, but maybe he, maybe not. I don't know. He may have left at a different, he may have just left Sintra earlier because he stayed with Pavetta. The reason he stayed in the first place was because of Pavetta. So if Pavetta, when Pavetta dies, he may have just left then. For all we know, Mausak is still alive somewhere out there. He's just chilling in some trees somewhere. He is a druid after all. So Iced is killed at 263 by an arrow to the eye at the Battle of Marnadal. And if, as we know, Calanthe commits suicide not very long after. The, the, she gets back to the city, and then the city is overwhelmed, and she asks her guards to kill her, and they're all afraid of her, so they still don't do it. So she's like, fine, I'll do it myself, which is very, very much uh, the, uh, in line with Calanthe's... Very Calanthe. Yeah, like, yeah. I'll do it myself. That's very, like, that's her... <laughs> that's like her motto. <laughs> like a, that's her house words. Calanthe, I'll do it yeah. myself. <laughs> if it's bordered on the impossible. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Because of her death, because of Ice death, and all these other characters, Visigurd basically becomes the de facto leader of the armies because all the other military leaders are dead. And he organizes resistance early in the books. There's a guerrilla army led by him. But then things start to fall apart because of the whole fake Cirilla thing. They are like resistance fighters, Sintran resistance independence fighters. And they hear that Ciri is voluntarily marrying the emperor. And they're like, well, that sucks. They thought she would fight with them and, and be a holdout. Of course, she is doing that because that's not the real Cirilla. But they don't know that. This starts to really undermine the morale of the Sintran resistance army. And it really takes Visigurd's hatred of the Sintran women to another level. Relate this to what we just presupposed about M here and being angry with Geralt for the child of surprise thing. 
Well, there were other people upset with Geralt for, quote-unquote, stealing away the heir to the throne of Sintra as they saw it. So lots of other nobles don't look kindly on a dude coming by to, like, take their princess. Of course, Geralt, who was called the White Wolf, the same rogue who laid claim to the Bright of Cirilla, Mavetta's daughter, granddaughter of Calanthe, the same Ciri of whom there is talk of now. You are too young to remember those times when the scandal was all that was talked about at the courts, but I was an eyewitness to those events. And what binds him to Princess Cirilla? That dog, the marshal pointed at Geralt, contributed to the marriage of Pavetta, daughter of Queen Calanthe, to Duny, an unknown stranger from the south. From this shameful union was born Cirilla. Even before her birth, she was promised to that bastard witcher as payment for his help in conducting the marriage. Have you heard of the law of surprise? Not at all, but keep talking, Marshal. The witcher, Visegerd again pointed his finger at Geralt, after the death of Pavetta, wanted to take the girl, but Calanthe wouldn't allow it and threw him out. But he waited for the right time. When the war started with Nilfgaard and Sintra, he took advantage of the confusion and turmoil and kidnapped Ciri. He kept the girl hidden because he knew that we were seeking her. And eventually, he grew bored of her and sold her to Emir. So none of that is true. Yeah. <laughs> and if it was just a private opinion of a, of a random citizen, no big deal. But this is, but Visigurd is surely telling this story to his soldiers that he's leading, and if not spreading it far and wide to other people too. So uh, that's a lot of ears listening to that take. So it's a pretty big deal. So that's not exactly good for Geralt to, to have that out there. Or just in general, it's just not good because <laughs> it's like you said, it's not true and it uh, puts blame where it doesn't belong. Because obviously, if Visigurd knew the rest of the story, I think he'd probably be more mad with Dooney <laughs> and obviously like Vilgefortz if he really, he would still probably not like Geralt, but he would no longer put Geralt at the top of the list, I think. But isn't it really easy to see how like this opinion, like this isn't over the top, but it's it's not, it's not crazy for someone to think this if you don't know the characters or the people or the personalities involved. So you could see how this would spread or be believable. Well, they were and, already spreading propaganda at quite a high rate, right? Like they want... That's true. I mean, they're, they were just taking over. And there's just, in general, the fall of Sintra. There's just a lot of people who are mad and they lost their homes, their refugees. There's going to be blame going all the way around. You know, we, we try to avoid too much TV talk, but we saw that in the TV people, like during the, in the refugee camps, people were cursing Calanthe's leadership. You know, they're just there looking for someone to blame because they're mad and they're living out in the woods and stuff. Isn't it interesting that this Count Echeverry hasn't heard of the Law of Surprise? That's, I, I thought that was kind of a neat little tidbit. This is, by the way, this Count Echeverry is the guy who's related to Siri. He's like super distantly related to Siri. He's, they both have... Uh, Muriel, the, the girl who had an affair with Amavet, the boy of the Houtberg triplets. It goes to show the different cultures care about things differently, right? We see, obviously, the Skelligans, like, oh, we, we see them go like, oh, whoa, the law of surprise and destiny. Yeah. And then we see people like Achiveri, who might be not ingrained in their history books, is something that's important, uh, something that's relevant. It might just be some like sort of Ah, that's that's from the Druids and the Skelligans and those people, you know, it's like. <laughs> and that's a great point too, Kyle, because Emir builds a, a cenotaph for Calanthe 
in Sintra to kind of honor her. It's a political move. The like Nilfgaardians weren't too happy with it, but it did help. The Sintran population did like it. But there's a second cenotaph for her on Skellige because she was unequivocally popular there. And so they like they there was a lot less controversy over her death there. They were just like, we liked her. The the sea went mad when she died. And we're going to honor her. Some, some of his smarter political moves, the fake Siri stuff really started to, people started to dissent after that, right? Like things started to get more sh- shady and people started to turn on him, right? Once yeah. they started to figure out that plot. Then in Sintra, 15 years ago, you talked a lot about destiny. I thought then it was nonsense, but it was your destiny, Witcher. Since that night, your fate was sealed, inscribed in black runes among the stars. Ciri, Pavetta's daughter, is your destiny and your death. For Cirilla, Pavetta's daughter, you'll hang. Nice guy. Well, <laughs> he didn't hang, but he's not entirely wrong. <laughs> Visigard the prophet? Is that what we're calling him now? <laughs> <laughs> so for all his bluster... Visigurd and and talk of loyalty and all this, he will end up leading his men on the side of Nilfgaard because, well, Cirilla marries not really Cirilla, but they they have he has no reason to doubt it. Cirilla marries the emperor, and they're like, okay, well, we're part of Nilfgaard now, so I am a Nilfgaardian. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh well. And by the way, in Blood of Elves, Queen Maeve, who is so really cool, under the uh, low key awesome, she's like, that's going to happen. She predicts it. She's like, yeah they're eventually going to just end up fighting for Nilfgaard. <laughs> so it's like, whoa, that was that was true. Queen of Lyria. Love her character. Yeah, yes. she's really cool. <laughs> Another peculiarity of medieval slash gothic slash monarchical style marriages is that sometimes something like this happens. Windhelm was a suitor. Windhelm of Atre was a suitor for, for Pavetta, right? When he was 12. And Rainfarn was his escort. Rainfarn was like 27, so in like an older st- elder statesman. He's the one who almost stabbed him, or did stab him here. So we don't know what happens to Rainfarn. But Wilhelm, six years later, seven years later, Calanthe betrothes Siri to Windhelm. So he's like second chance at marrying into this dynasty. But then four years later, Calanthe breaks the betrothal. Even now, I'm not sure why, but she's like, nah. It probably political reasons, maybe just because she realized she had to have Skellige because Atre is already like a traditional uh, vassal of, of Sintra. So maybe she just, just, the situation changed. But then, of course, the war breaks out, etc. In 1267, which would be four years after Ice's death and Calanthe's death, Windhelm leads a rebellion. And it lasts about a year. And the Skelligans get involved. The rebellion in the province has been quelled. We have broken up the rebels. Only a few managed to escape to Verdun, and we've caught their leader, Duke Windhelm of Atre. Good, said the man after a while, still not raising his head from his hands. Windhelm of Atre. Order him to be beheaded. No, not beheaded. Executed in some other way. Spectacularly, lengthily, and cruelly. And publicly, it goes without saying. A terrifying example is necessary, something that will frighten others. Only please, Cohorn, spare me the details. You don't have to bother with a vivid description in your report. I take no pleasure from it. 
Liar. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I take notes. Like, actually, send me the report. Yeah, right. I'll get a report from somebody else. Yeah. I'll be there myself. <laughs> is any of that vindictive from a question of price era, or is it just is it pure you know politics, or is it really a little of both? I think the fact that he repeats his name yeah. suggests that there is at least some some of the history that is influencing in the year here. His pride is wounded, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you know, if he was also betrothed to Siri, like, I mean, <laughs> Amir does not want anyone in the way of what he is doing, even if they are no longer in the way. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well said, well said. So, Kraken Crate is Jarl of Skellige with Ice, when Ice becomes king of Sintra, and then when Ice dies... Crack is still in charge of the armed forces. So I, what I wrote here is he seems to have changed a lot after a year. Maybe the fist shaking by Ice finally did its work over time. Like, you know what? I'm going to start listening to all that fist shaking. So he swore a blood oath when K- Ice and Kalanthi died. He was like, I will get my revenge. <laughs> and before the war, though, Siri learns to skate with Kjalmar. That's Croc and Crate's son. And they get fake engaged but of course, that gets, you know, they get split up because that marriage is not sanctioned or anything. Crack has that brief relationship with Yennefer, and we quoted them earlier, and he helps her rescue Siri. So he does a lot of important things, and he joins into Windhelm's rebellion. And then when the rebellion is put down, the Skelligans are like, well, we don't have to stop. <laughs> we can keep going. <laughs> They're not, we're still the power at sea. We're still not afraid of Nilfgaard. And you get this line from King Henselt. Jarl Kraken Kreis, if you remember, didn't sign a truce with Nilfgaard and regularly bites them, attacking and setting fire to their maritime settlements and forts in the provinces. The Nilfgaardians have nicknamed him Tirthis Muir, Seaboar. They frighten children with him. <laughs> yeah, so Crack oh. really becomes something, doesn't he? Um, <laughs> Uh, and in The Witcher <laughs> 3, there's this huge <laughs> plotline in Skellige, and he it's my favorite plotline in the whole story. It's Oh, really? That's cool. Oh, hell yeah. I love Crack on Crate. And that's why I'm called Crack on Kyle today. (laughs) (laughs) Just to follow up on Visigurd, we don't actually know what happens to him. I assume he just like becomes part of the Nilfgaardian army, gets an officer's position there because he's an existing leader. But for all we know, he dies in one of the battles like Brenna or something like that. But Crack and Crate for sure survives. That's it. That's the only other character that we have. Um, one th- yeah, one thing I want to give Sapkowski a shout out for here too is that it's not typical in fiction for they change their mind to be a major reason to, for plots to move in a certain way. But he does that several times for really key moments. Like, and that I think that's great because that's realistic. People do change their minds when when you know it all comes to a head and you realize like what you're about what you've been planning to do and you're actually about to take the leap and do this thing that you've been thinking about doing that's when you're confronted with what the outcome might be most of all and that might cause you to back down i mean a little bit brave as a narrative choice well you know what's really interesting too sapkowski inverts fairy tales he does a lot of reverse hero's journeys right mm-hmm. like if you're a hero you live your you live long enough to see yourself become the villain if you're the villain you live long enough to see yourself become the hero or at least die trying that kind of narrative besides even as Urkian, you were quite pleasant but you can't count on having the throne just yet i intend to rule a little longer beside the new king of sintra 
the noble Ace Tiersach of Skellig has made me a very interesting proposition. You don't want the throne of Sintra. You want the princess. So Geralt's more right than he knows there because, I mean, I'm sure if, if it weren't for Vilgefort's later coming to Dooney and showing him this prophecy, he might have just wanted the throne of Sintra as a way to help himself get back his empire. But in fact, he does want the princess. He just didn't necessarily realize all the reasons why at the first point. So that's pretty, that's pretty good. It's, it's a tongue-in-cheek there. On reread, that line really jumps out. Dooney claims to be the son of Ackerspark, which, as we talked about, but the actual descendants of Ackerspark. <laughs> this is so funny, right? We have Orm, Gorm, Torm, Horm, and Gonzalez for the male children. And then the, the girls are Elia. Go home, Zabkowski, you're done. <laughs> yes, Gonzalez, where the <laughs> hell did that come from? Elia, <laughs> Valia, Nina, Paulina, Malvina, and Argentina. <laughs> Such a troll, man, I swear to God. <laughs> speaking of weird, and speaking of weird translations from the extra genealogy table. It is known that Ace Tirsuch proposed to the queen several times but always got a basket. <laughs> a gift basket? <laughs> like, Does that really mean got... like dumped? Like <laughs> sent you an edible arrangement? Like I'm wondering if it's a basket <laughs> of fruit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I won't marry you, but here's a basket of fruit. <laughs> here's a nice gift. <laughs> so, uh, as your, as your uh, consolation prize. So this is where it all began, thought Dijkstra looking around the large hall. A famous engagement feast during which appeared an iron hedgehog demanding Princess Pavetta's hand and Queen Calanthe hired a witcher. How amazing are the interwoven fates of humans, thought the spy, surprised by the banality of his own thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>